And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2, we are going to read verse 1 and then skip down to verse 64 and read through verse 70. So Ezra chapter 2 and first of all reading verse 1. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Ezra 2 at verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then moving down to verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is, in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minars of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Amen. And thus far again, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Why do we find this long list of 125 names in the Bible? And why, as we asked last Lord's Day evening, is this list of names also repeated in its entirety, almost identically, in the book of Nehemiah, almost a century later? Well, as we noted last Lord's Day evening, the Bible is ultimately a book about God. And so the safest rule of interpretation of any passage of Scripture in the Bible is to ask, even with such a passage as this, what does this teach about God? And as we took up that question beginning last Lord's Day evening, we came to chapter 2 of the book of Ezra, and we saw that these verses, this chapter, this passage demonstrates the faithfulness of God 
to His covenant with His people. That's what this is all about. That's why all these names are here. These are real people with a real history to whom a real God was covenantally faithful. That is what this is all about. As we come back to Ezra chapter 2, we are going to think about three things this evening. First of all, by way of review, a covenant God and His covenant people revisited, summarizing where we were from last week and setting the foundation for the remaining exposition. And then secondly, we're going to look at generous heads of families. And then thirdly and lastly, another exodus. So first of all then, a covenant God and His covenant people revisited. It was in 538 B.C. that Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued his decree that permitted the Jews, the people of God, who were in exile to return to Jerusalem and permit them to rebuild the temple in fulfillment of earlier prophecy. And now in the description that we have of this journey, of course, as we saw last Lord's Day evening, it's not a description that answers every question we may have of curiosity with regard to the journey. Ezra does not give us here many of the details that we might like to know, but he does focus on the thing that is particularly relevant here, and that is how God advances redemptive history, even as the faithful covenant God to His covenant people. That's what we have here. Names, yes, for sure, but names of the covenant people of the covenant God to whom the promises of God had been given. And their return, as is evidenced here by this journey, indicated that the promise that God had given, first of all to Abraham, and then onward to Isaac and Jacob, and down through the centuries, even to this generation, that promise had not been forgotten. We read, of course, as we saw as we came to verse 64, the number of those who returned, 42,360. That's hardly the number of the stars in the sky, is it? But that's what God had promised to Abraham. I will make your offspring like sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. What was to become of that promise when they were so relatively and seemingly pitifully small at this time? Well, they were to remember and we are to remember that God is faithful to His promise even in the days of small things. He was faithful then in days of small things, and He is faithful now in days of small things. And as we read in the book of Zechariah, we are not to despise, therefore, the day of small things. 
And so as we looked through the details of these names, as we saw the structure of their community and society, as we saw the various roles that God had called each to, what did we conclude last Lord's Day evening? Well, we saw that this highlighted in this list, this long list of names, that service in the church of Christ, be it one of the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, need not be glamorous, and often it is not. It need not be glamorous to be noticed and to be commended by the covenant God of His covenant people. And even though it may seem insignificant to the men of this world, even though it may seem not very impressive, yet even the most menial task, whether it be in the service of a physical temple or whether it be in the service of a spiritual temple made up of living stones, that service to Christ will be commended even as our Lord Jesus said, if it's but a cup of water given to one of His people. And so, we concluded last Lord's Day evening by seeing that our motivation as the people of God in the service of God is ultimately to please God. That's what motivates us, even in the most ordinary of tasks. It's not the recognition of men that we seek. Well, then, in the second place, we move on this evening to generous heads of families, verses 68 through 70. Generous heads of families. The exiles returned with gifts for the rebuilding work, verses 68 through 70. Now, there are several things to note here. First of all, those who had given these gifts gave according to their ability, verse 69. Of course, as you hear that phrase, it may um, remind you of some very familiar words of the Apostle Paul that we came across in 2 Corinthians when we went through that book, and indeed in 1 Corinthians. Um, so, Paul adopts a very similar way of reasoning in giving in the kingdom of God. He writes to the church at Corinth and exhorts them that every Christian should set something aside and present as a gift each Lord's day, as he may prosper, he says, 1 Corinthians 16.2. This is to be something that is part of the worship of every Christian. It should be something that's very practical. It should just not be left to random when I remember or when it occurs to me. Paul says it ought to be something that we plan to do. Um, and then as he commends that principle again in his le second letter to the church at Corinth, uh, he specifically repeats this principle we find here in the book of Ezra, according to what a person has, 2 Corinthians 8.12, and not according to what he does not have. Now, we've been through these principles uh, before, so I don't wish to um, overly uh, uh, labor the point here. Um, but we see it throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, 
the giving to the work of the kingdom of God, and not that a person says, well, I don't have that to give. You may not. You may not have 500 darics of gold to give. That's not the point. We are to give according to what we do have. And so often can it be that we are more concerned to justify what we don't have than to actually see what God has richly given to us and that we ought to set aside that generous portion of first fruits to return to the Lord and for His kingdom. Secondly here, we see there is a genuine spirit of generosity here. We read the returning Israelites gave, and maybe this might resonate more with us. You may know Dareks as ancient weights and measures. Most of us do not. Um, let me try and put it in modern measures. 565 pounds of gold, significant weight of gold, and over three tons of silver. That's what was given here for the rebuilding of the temple. This is far more than some bare token gesture. There's not just some bare minimum here. Now, when you get into actual details of giving, uh, almost before you have begun any sort of conversation or discussion about it, the whole specter of legalism arises. Now, wait a moment. Are you going to set something down here um, that is not set down in the Scriptures and tell people what they have to give? Oh, that might be my attitude as you say something to me. So, now, wait a minute. Uh, who made you lawmaker? over exactly what has to be given on a regular basis. And that can be a problem. It's not to be denied that that has sometimes be a, been a great affliction in the church of um, rules, laws, man-made laws. Remember how the Pharisees had kind of taken up this spirit with great enthusiasm and gusto that they could measure out the smallest measure of uh, herbs, uh, tithing of cumin and all of those things. Um, it's not that that cannot be an issue, and it has been. But again, sadly, in an attempt to avoid that, to avoid legalism, perhaps today the issue is not so much that, but actually we are going to the opposite extreme. We actually equally become legalistic by saying, well, what is the least I can give? And still be thought, either by the Lord or others, to have complied with the law of God. We've talked about this a number of times through the years. It's legitimate to take tax deductions when it comes around to doing our return. It's a legal deduction, take it. But you know, we should not determine, as Paul would say, set aside, determine what that is to give it to the Lord on the basis of how we would do our tax return. Let me try and reduce my income by legitimate deductions as much as I can. And then I say to the Lord, well, I can only give according to what I have and, what I, and not according to what I don't have. I don't have anything left. Because I have argued legitimately, I must do this and this and this and this and this. 
Rather, I think what is commended to us here by this example is not so much what is the minimum I can get away with, but rather how much more can I give? Yes, of that which the Lord has given, of what I have, not according to what I don't have, but of that which I do have, how much more can I give than perhaps I currently do? And that ultimately is a matter of the hearts. Elders can preach and preach and preach on this topic, but in the end, it has to be a matter of the heart that the Lord does the work, that we give freely, we give gladly, we give willingly, not coerced by repetitive, coercive sermons. I always remember an Old Testament professor of mine at school saying, when you have a particular building project that you need to do on the church property, you don't choose that time to preach from the book of Haggai and beat people over the head about their paneled houses, he would say. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's a way to preach these passages that is not about beating up on people. But there's also a way to preach to all of our hearts each one of us, is there that same spirit of generosity in our hearts as there was here amongst the people of God? Thirdly, the fact that we read only some of them, some of the heads of the families, made these free will offerings, verse 68, at least suggests that this may foreshadow that this was not always the Spirit, and at least was not the Spirit amongst them all, even at this time. And pointing forward to perhaps more disappointing times where the level of commitment would begin to dwindle. If we turn to the prophet Haggai, um, the very same prophet I was speaking of where he had to come and um, with the word of the Lord to challenge people because they kind of said, well, you know, we can't. We haven't got anything to give to the house of God, and, and it, it stalled for some time. And yet God said, well, really? Have I not given anything to you that you could give to the work of God? And He pointed to their wonderful homes and all of the things that they'd done for themselves. When we read of Haggai, particularly Haggai 1 verse 4, and particularly that wonderful phrase of their fine paneled houses, wonderful woodwork in their homes, um, the prophet there points out with considerable force and with a certain amount of bluntness um, that whatever amounts the people thought they could or could not give to the Lord's work. The prophet says, it seems you have more enough, more than enough for yourselves and for all that you desire. And so, uh, what we read here, um, again, whilst we rejoice in the generosity of those who did give, um, the fact that not everybody did, and as we read on in the story, though not in the book of Ezra, um, but from Haggai of those days, um, it wasn't necessarily the case that it continued uh, 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 year after year, century after century. 
After all, these were still uncertain times, even at this point here in the book of Ezra. Um, Returning to Jerusalem held no immediate guarantee of prosperity for these people. As they settled either in the city or in their nearby towns, verse 70, no doubt there was at least some temptation to think about, well, you know, in these uncertain times, I'd better store up a reserve for myself. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's going to happen. And maybe to withhold or not to continue generous free will offerings. Um, Even arguing that's why stewardship. Well, however, that balance has to be worked out very practically in the Christian life. What's clear here is the priority was the reconstruction of the temple. That's what God's priority was, and therefore that's God's people, people's priority, is the rebuilding of the temple. It wasn't first and foremost their own personal stability, personal prosperity. God's worship comes before personal need. That's what the message is here. And so, as we would read on uh, in these times, one great warning we note here is seemingly even among the most committed returnees, those who at least initially were giving these generous free will offerings, by the time we come to the book of Haggai, there yet remained a spirit of worldliness amongst them. Therefore, there was always this temptation that was... Yes, to be fought, the good fight, and to put it in New Testament Pauline language, to put off the old man and put on the new man as it is in Christ. There was still a battle to be fought, to acknowledge that the temptation was real, difficult to repel and reject. It was always there. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, perhaps some felt that going back was enough of a commitment. It was, after all, more commitment than was shown by those who had remained in Babylon. And then he puts the very pointed question to us, that commentator. He says, do we sometimes argue just like that? End quote. And then he fast forwards, um, seemingly not only a good theologian, but a great pastoral hearts, knows people, knows the people of God. He goes on to say, quote, after all, some of us do at least attend church sometimes twice a week, which is more than many other professing Christians do. We may then wonder how anything more could be expected of us in our commitment to the work of God. And then he goes on without me quoting him more and more at length to say, uh, how do we combat that, that spirit, that attitude, whether we find it in our own hearts, uh, whether we find it more broadly in the church of the Lord Jesus in our day and generation? He says that spirit survives, even thrives, until we are brought again to consider 
what God has given for us as Christians. What did God not spare for us? His one and only begotten Son. As Paul says, Romans 8.32, He did not spare Him. And if He did not spare Him, how will He not with Him give us all things, Paul says. And yet so often we have our fingers tightly around the things of this world, thinking, you know, I really need to hang on to these. I could not be generous with a free will offering to the work of the Lord as these people were, just in case. Here, by way of application, there are some very serious questions to ask ourselves as we ask it, not in terms of looking around at the circumstances around ourselves, perhaps in certain economies, as they looked at their economy, uh, didn't seem very certain returning from exile. We're not in that same circumstance, but I think you get the point. We live in at the times at the moment that are not the most certain economically. Would we argue like they did? You know, we, we need to be very financially secure ourselves before we start generously uh, giving um, gifts away, even to the Lord's work. Perhaps we ask ourselves more fundamentally, um, to what extent am I devoted to the kingdom of God? I might argue, well, I'm not like one of those who stayed in Babylon. I wouldn't even get up and go. But, you know, now that I've come, that's probably about the extent of my commitment at this point. I don't see why I should give any more. Am I ready to sacrifice? Whatever it might be. Sacrifice assets, treasures, pleasures, gifts, graces for the good of God and His kingdom rather than for my own sake and satisfaction. Well, then that brings us in the third place this evening to another exodus, another exodus. As we read through this passage, and particularly as we come towards the end, we find the same features here in the return from Babylon in 538 B.C. as in the first exodus out of Egypt under Moses. We see here the people of God returning or coming to, in the first time, the land, the land of promise. And we also see a feature that is common to both, that in both those cases, God caused a foreign, powerful king, whether it be Pharaoh of Egypt or Cyrus of Persia, to bid them to leave where they were so that they might come to the land. Notice again in common, they initially settle in and around Jerusalem. They did that, this now in 538, just as their forefathers did under Moses. Their neighbors provided them with gold and silver vessels to take with them, as they did in the original Exodus, so they do now. And just as in Moses' time, their numbers included animals and male and female singers even, down to that level of detail. Verses 65 through 67 
even as we read in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 38. So, there's a great parallel here um, between the first exodus out of Egypt and this exodus out of Babylon back to um, the land of promise. What was the purpose? Perhaps that's the point we should focus on here in the midst of all the other details of parallel. What was the common purpose, both of the first exodus and of this return exodus from Babylon? It was so that the worship of the one true God of Israel might be given to him according to his commandment. Um, we'll get to that, Lord willing, next time we're in the book of Ezra as we come to chapter 3 and move on. Um, but that was the issue. Let my people go that they might worship me, God said, Exodus 3 verse 12. And so it is here that the temple might be rebuilt so that the people of God would worship God according to His commandment under the old covenant. And at this time, um, if the people were to worship God as He had commanded, then of course the ruined temple would have to be rebuilt. That was central to their future as the covenant people of God. Indeed, their identity as um, Jews, as the people with whom God had covenanted, meant nothing unless they worshipped that God according to His commandment. Indeed, in the way that Moses had laid down as God had revealed to him. That's how worship was conducted in the first temple before it was destroyed and corrupted. And that's what had to be restored here. And so, what was the purpose of this second exodus? It wasn't simply that people might have relief and freedom, as often is the great mantra of our day, the great purpose that they left their lives in Babylon and even returned to the many uncertainties, humanly speaking, materially speaking, in Jerusalem and Judah, was they were there to worship God according to His commandments. What did that mean practically for them? It meant they had to put God first in their thoughts, in all of their principles by which they would live, in all of their affections for what would they really give their hearts to, and therefore in all of their actions. What would they do day by day? What does this teach us? It teaches us for all of God's people, in whatever time we may live according to God's providence, the worship of the one true living God according to His commandment must be placed before any other priority or consideration for the people of God. That's what it means. It is not to say that there are not other responsibilities given to us in other spheres, the sphere of the, the family, the sphere of the state. But this is the priority for the people of God, over and above all others, 
God first in thought, principle, affection, and action, such that the true worship of God according to His commandment is placed before any other consideration. Notice here how the men and the women of all ranks of their society and community joined in the cause with initial enthusiasm. They were sure of this. It was their conviction that it was for this purpose that God had brought them into relationship with Himself. This is why God had covenanted with them that He would be their God, they would be His people, and their responsibility under that was to worship Him according to His commandments. Of course, the Lord Jesus told a Samaritan woman many, many centuries later, God still seeks worshipers like that. He seeks them now just as much as then. John 4 verse 23, remember, as Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well at Sychar. Worshippers who are prepared to put the worship of God before everything else, and worshippers who are willing to engage in worship in the way that God has prescribed in His Word. That's what God desired then. That's what God desires now. When we see true worship in that way, we see it is truly, as to use a very modern word, countercultural. That's not what our godless, worldly culture believes, thinks, espouses. It had been impossible in Babylon for them to worship God in the biblical pattern. They had no temple. There was no altar on which to offer the sacrifices that were commanded. Indeed, for all but the older members of the community, the exiles had probably never experienced biblical worship. For those born in Babylon, they'd never even seen what it looked like in practice. Again, one of the contemporary commentators applying that says this, this can be just as true today. He goes on to say, quote, we have settled down, bought homes, opened iras, dug in for the long run. We have in short become like the world around us. As our parents or grandparents might say, have we become worldly? And then the conclusion of this commentator is this is what has happened to evangelical Christians in America today, end quote. And whether you happen to agree with his conclusion in entirety or you'd want to qualify it in lots of different ways, we can all have an opinion about that. But, but you get the point, don't you? how you take the circumstance from um, six centuries before Christ, something that's very foreign to us. Um, first of all, Babylon under a Persian empire, um, ancient Jerusalem, we might feel very disconnected from that. Like, what has that got to do with me? 
but as you see, as you join the dots of what was true for them spiritually, it can be the same issue for us today, though the details of time and space are different. At least for now, these men and women who returned to Jerusalem were determined to honor God, to make Him their great priority, and therefore His worship their great priority. And what would that mean for them? It would mean to reject the world and to be faithful and to see that true biblical worship be restored. Momentous task, though, that would be not only to raise up again an altar, which they begin with, but to rebuild a whole temple. This here is their stated intention. Now, again, because we know the whole story, um, we can begin to say, yes, but they didn't keep their intention very long. Um, it tells us that in the end, they would not and could not do it. Of course, we thought about that last Lord's Day evening, didn't we? We think about it again. Of all these 42,360 people, leaders, priests, Levite helpers, temple helpers, servants of Solomon, none of them could ultimately give the worship to God that He prescribed. They couldn't do it personally, perfectly, and perpetually. They were not able to do that. Under God's hand, they would indeed reestablish the types and shadows of the old covenant in rebuilding the temple. But in the end, their worship would not be that pure, sinless worship of God's totally faithful people to the Lord. They must patiently wait for one who would fulfill all of that. As they reestablished types and shadows, they waited for the one who would fulfill those types and shadows. The great antitype again, Jesus Christ seed of the woman, great David's greatest son, the true Israelites, the one of whom we read around our Lord's table, I delight to do Thy will, O God. That is yet to unfold in redemptive history. For now, as we close this evening, at least we should Permit these people at this time with their commitment to reestablish all covenant worship to challenge us as we sit under the new covenant in our worship of God, to challenge our convictions about the centrality of the worship of God in our lives as the professing people of God. Let me just put it so simply, if I could, to you as we close. How important is it to you that indeed we worship God, make it our top priority, and how important is it to you that we worship God as He has prescribed, and we make that our top priority? Let me ask one last question as we close. What sacrifices are we prepared to make 
to ensure that the worship of God, its implementation, its consistent practice is to the glory and honor of God as He has commanded us. What are we prepared to sacrifice? Our convenience, our own personal preferences and desires, you can add to that list as you so desire by way of its application. These people at this time did, and in that sense, they are a great example to us, though ultimately they could not sustain it. But by way of positive application this evening as we close, we are to see that we should take that seriously how important is the worship of God to us, as He has prescribed? What would we sacrifice? What would we be willing to give to ensure that such worship is implemented and consistently practiced? May God so help us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by Your Word. We are challenged by Your Word that You have prescribed what You would have us do to worship You and to do so aright. We pray that You would give us the spirit of the people of God at this time, of those who returned the desire, the conviction, the drive, that they might once again reinstitute that which You had commanded. Lord, we know as we have familiarity with the story. It wasn't easy. There was opposition from without, opposition from within. And yet, O oh Lord, we pray that You would help us, even instruct us from the people of this time, that in our day and our generation, we might, as the people of God, worship You and give ourselves totally to that not neglecting other responsibilities and priorities, but see this as the ultimate priority. Grant that we might be those worshipers of whom the Lord Jesus spoke, that God desires to have those who worship according to spirit and truth. Here as we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Yeah.